and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. My name is John Ingle. And I am Mariah E. Gates, and this is Minute 32, which begins with the dropship locking into position and ends with the dropship piercing the planet's cloud cover. Well, thanks for coming back again and being my guest host, Mariah. It's really appreciated. Thanks for having me. And Asia Romano is back again today. Asia, thank you for coming back. My pleasure. Thanks. All right, so we have uh, locked dropship into position, and we're about to, uh, I guess we're about to head down to the planet. So I got in my notes, I have uh, the minute starting with a little look, a subtle little look between Ripley and Hicks. You two picked up on that, I'm yep. sure. Yep. It's nice. I, I'm glad it's, you know, we've gotten a little bit between the two of them leading into this minute. Oh, we've had... They give kind of a, he gives her kind of a look just right out of the cryopod. And then whenever she has her little beef with Bishop at the dinner table at the end of the mess hall scene and, uh, and uh, Frost gives his little line about she must not like the cornbread either. We can see in that shot, it's another two shot where we're getting a different dynamic between the two characters. We see that Hicks is actually really concerned about what's going on with Ripley. He's, he's watching, he's trying to figure out what could be her problem. Right. So he's definitely got, he's definitely zeroed in on her. He's concerned. I think he's the I think he's the most empathetic of all the Marines. Would you say? Yeah. And then I I thought this was interesting. They exchange this glance, and then she immediately looks down, which is sort of a um, not a moment of weakness, but definitely not a moment of confidence. Yeah. And I, I find that really interesting. Um, like, is she, cause you know, she's going back to a place of huge trauma and is she thinking, oh my God, we're all going to die again. Is she thinking not this again? Is she thinking, can I do it again? You're not really sure what she's thinking. I think it's also too, like we talked about in the last episode, uh, an acknowledgement of the fact that she's the odd person out. Yeah. I think, I think she's probably a little bit other than, uh, Hudson, you know, zeroing in on her and giving her the rundown of all the weapons, which is just a big showy, that's not really an interaction. You know, it's just a big show. Right. That he's giving her, she's not getting interaction with anybody. Everybody's kind of ignoring her, uh, interrupting her when she's talking. She's sitting off at the other table. So with the grunts, so far she hasn't really gotten much attention. And then he throws her a glance and she gets it. It might make her a little wary. Maybe it's been a long time since she's gotten, you know, somebody... Actually, I don't know a sense from somebody that they actually might give a shit. I don't know, but right. yeah, the, it's a it's an interesting. There's multiple reads you could make on that uh, moment where she looks down for sure. It's also interesting that she keeps her eyes closed for the bulk of this minute, and then it's not until they're about to hit the planet that she looks up and opens her eyes. Yeah, it's. I mean, I with her, I I would be pretty nervous about this. I mean, she's she's a, a veteran space traveler but this dropship thing's a whole other ball game that's for sure so i don't think i'd be too excited about doing this either i might just uh i would probably have my eyes shut all the way down to the to the planet surface as well but um it's later you know that she she finds something to maybe distract her that you know that's in the next minute but she she comes up with a subject to, to bring up at least so and maybe a little bit of a deflection i don't know i also think it's significant on hicks's part that he gives her this like really appraising look because he's obviously trying to figure out, you know, he's still wary of her. He's still wondering where she fits in. And then he is immediately so comfortable, like whatever she does reassures him so much that he goes to sleep, you know, 
because he's the he's the one who's not phased by this drop, even though everybody else is kind of, you know, they're either freaking out and trying to hide it or they're just, you know, laughing their way through it. And he's just completely unconcerned. And I think it's significant that he he starts out this scene being very like he has his eyes on her. He wants to know how she's reacting. And then he's like, OK, it's fine. Yeah, this is actually a real thing. This uh, sort of narcolepsy and in high adrenaline situations. I think that this is something that actually happens in military situations when people are about to jump out of airplanes and so on. And I actually experienced it a little bit. I had a medical scare a few years ago where I had to go into surgery a couple of times. And it was very odd that I would, I'm terrified of the concept of surgery, yet right before it would happen, I would become incredibly calm, like noticeably calm. And I think some people just react to when their adrenaline's high and, and there's any kind of a fear factor, they just kind of their body reacts in the opposite way. But yeah, that's, that's interesting to read it in, in relation to Ripley that there's a, there's, he took a moment to check on her or he took a moment to read her and kind of give her a thought and wonder what she's, what her place is, like you said. And it's like, okay, we're cool. And he nodded off for a nap. Yeah. I think that they do that. This movie really, especially early on in all the establishing shots before he actually even asks her, you know, are you all right for the first time we see them building up that silent camaraderie this minute also includes my favorite moment with Hudson. Are we talking about the elevator? Yeah, when he's like, we're on an elevator to hell. And then he goes, woohoo. And he sounds just like Slim Pickens in Doctor Strange Love. <laughs> wow. Like, that's <laughs> just like him. And I'm like, does he know that he's about to die? Like, is that's he just, good. Like, so hopped up. Like, well, know. right before that, too, though, we also get we get the bomb doors opening shot, don't we? Yeah. You get that, that high angle above the ship. I think it's a beautiful shot. It's a very Doctor Strange love moment. And and we're mixing sort of military with politics in a similar way to Doctor Strange love too, so I could see that maybe being purposefully done. Yeah, I my note I was gonna have a very, you know, much more practical uh note on this shot above the ship when the doors open and you get the planet below. I was gonna say I think it's a really lovely effect shot, and it's very effective as well in that it gives us that that moment of looking down before the drop, where we as the audience then can attach to the idea of you know how far it is going down, and you feel it, and it looks real. It's done in a way where you have this minimal amount of the planet is seen, and though we know it's an effect, it looks pretty real against this model. Then we get. Hudson going, telling us we're going down express elevator to hell. And then that, I think all of that builds up to the, the impactful moment where they actually drop. I think it all makes it all feel a little bit more real and more visceral. So all of this is building up to something. I think it works really well. And of course, express elevator to hell going down is a, you know, big quotable line from the movie that she always like Paxton provides many of those, but also I guess it has a little bit of irony to it. Because they are uh, they are <laughs> heading into hell in a sort of a way. Right. It only works if, if you believe that he thinks he's fine, you know? Yeah. Do we think that Hudson does think he's fine? That's the thing about Hudson that's interesting. Is he putting on a show? Is he always posturing? Or does he actually have this um, this level of hubris where he, th- he does think everything's going to be fine? Does he think everybody else is going to keep him safe? I think Hudson's a, a he's a complicated character in a weird way for being what seems to be a big cartoon. I can't tell if he's being real, if he's being uh truthful when he says that everything's going to be fine or uh these big 
bravado moments where he's yelling out, you know, express elevator to hell, if that is because he's confident or if it's the exact opposite. I think that's really interesting. To me, I feel like his big breakdown when he realizes that all of the technology that he's put his trust in and all the weapons that he's put his trust in are completely useless on the planet later, I feel like that that gains potency if he has up until now been completely trusting in those, you know, and maybe there's an element of security or an element of insecurity beneath that. But, you know, I think it's still, you can be insecure and be a little worried and nervous, but still, you know, you know what reality is, right? (laughs) And then he goes into this place where he has no idea what reality is anymore. Yeah, I think he's definitely someone who relies on his past experiences. And that's why he's talked, like he talks about the different, weapons in the deleted scene, he, he, these are experiences that he's had. They're things that he knows, and they're about to go some, somewhere that is so foreign to his knowledge that if the things he knows don't work, suddenly you just lose everything. But leading up to it, he, he keeps building up confidence through these things that he knows well. Yeah, it's true. I guess he doesn't really lose it, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but he doesn't really lose it until that ship crashes, right? Mm-hmm. And right. all those, everything that he's been bragging about is gone. Uh, that's a good point. There's also later a moment when they're, they aren't allowed to use their firearms, and it's another moment where he flips out. Um, so I, I think they're, they're his comfort blankets, and I think he gets lots of confidence from having these tools, and um, not having them is not great. Yeah, and that's actually why I really love that badass moment when he's you know, when he does escalate from I'm a badass, my crew is a badass, but my weapons, they're the real badass because I feel like he does have a lot of ownership over them and he does have a lot of technical expertise and uh, and like affection for them. <laughs> and I think that's true to a lot of people who um, have tools that they use, whether those tools are weapons or like a seamstress, it feels um, more confident when she's using what they're using a sewing machine that they are comfortable with and that this is their sewing machine. But then, like, if you ever watch... I'm bringing fashion in, I'm sorry. If you ever watch uh, Project <laughs> Runway, when they all these uh, designers have to start using these sewing machines that aren't their machine, like, yeah, disaster happens because they're used to what they're used to and they know the quirks. And you really do get sort of a symbiotic relationship with your tools when you're somebody whose job relies on those tools. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of of a piece of technology as extension of self, I guess could play in like when we've, we've talked a little bit about the evolution of technology and what it, how it affects people and their intelligence or their common sense and so on. But in this particular case, you could say as an extension of your own survival instinct, you know, where people were once, once had to survive on their own, the more tools you give them, the more that becomes a part of them as far as to keep them safe. So yeah, that, that plays into some of the things we've already been talking about, but makes perfect sense. And I've never really thought about it. You're right, because uh, Asia, you mentioned earlier that he's a, uh, clearly the hacker guy. I think they call technically he's called a comtech, uh, something like that. So he would be the ultimate guy to be dependent on the tools, I guess. So that's, that's good points. It's good. I've never really thought of him this way. I always thought of him as kind of a whimpering child buried under a lot of phony bravado. But I didn't think about the fact that he has motivation for feeling safe that's taken away from him, the safety blanket, as you said, Mariah. Yeah. I also wanted to notice, uh, mention in these two minutes, the music. I think mm-hmm. we didn't mention it last time, but um, it's that really intense, like, mer- mater- uh, what's the word for? Oh, not material. Um, 
militaristic, there we go, militaristic drum music. Yeah. Yeah. That, like, it gets more and more intense as they all get more tense. Um, Right. But when does it stop? Did you notice? I mean, I we were talking about. I was talking about the build up to the moment where they drop. It's kind of funny, and this is your your pal Pharaoh, Mariah. Yeah. The, it's building and building. Everything's getting tense, and we're more and more nervous. And then it, she does her little hand stretchy thing that she yeah, does yeah. right before, and then yeah. it stops. And she goes, "Mark, real cool, real cool." She hits that button. There's no music behind it, nothing, because everything's under control right there. Boom, they drop. I think it's a really nicely built. It, it's one of those things James Cameron is just undeniably good at. Is you know He's not good at a lot of things, but the things he are, is good at, he's really good at. And some, It's building up to moments of action or moments where you're supposed to be hit with kind of viscerally by a moment. He's really good at cutting those scenes together, and this is a good example of that. And I think it's good a good character moment with Pharaoh. She gets a couple more as, as this drop continues, but... I, I love that moment where that music just drops out and then she hits the button. Yeah, this uh, movie was nominated for its editing and you really see it in moments like this where they just they cut it so perfectly that there's not a wasted frame, there's not a wasted beat, and it keeps the tension building throughout. Well, and it's crazy because you know, I don't know how much you know about the production. Apparently Ray Lovejoy, the editor, was stuck in the editing bay at all, pretty much at all times being fed footage as it was coming out. And it was a it was a crazy, crazy experience. James Horner then would have to take that footage and put music to it all in this sort of assembly line to hit the release date that they were they were stuck on. While James Cameron and the crew couldn't get on the same page due to work hours and so on. So really this is another we talked about it a couple weeks ago about how great film often comes from duress, desperation and you know having to hit a deadline. This is one of those examples, I think. And it's amazing that, yeah, it got nominated for for Best Editing Oscar. And by all means, this should have had some serious editing problems by what I've heard. He was just being given scenes out of order, things that weren't even um, storyboarded completely, things that changed in mid, you know, uh, improvisational moments were happening. And yet he was still able to cut it together into what, what we ended up with. He's definitely should have been commended for that. Yeah, I think story, stories like that always make me um, in awe of film editors. I, I uh, was in film school, and for a semester, I wanted to be a film editor. And it's fun, but I don't have the organizational skills um, to do it. <laughs> like, I love it when it's finished, but I don't, I, I don't think I would have thrived in, in those, that circumstance. And you, you need to have the right kind of mind, and clearly he did. So that's, that's you know, really good. Corner said, too, that he was having so much trouble working in this assembly line conditions because James Horner, like he would try and score something. And as it was coming off the editing, I guess, roulette, and then uh, Cameron would go back and reshoot things. And so he was just having to rescore and rescore and didn't know what was happening and didn't have like a, a sense of the overarching film narrative. And I think that just makes scenes like this really, really extraordinary because you still do manage to get that musical suspension and release despite all of the, the odds yeah, this is why you should assemble a crack crew, and then they can just thrive no matter what. <laughs> yeah, I, I, again, yeah, I think under, it, doesn't it seem that productions that were under duress are always the ones that we're talking about decades later? It's, I, it's, I don't know. It's like Ocean's Eleven. If you have a good team, no matter what happens, yep. 
They can yeah. work through it. <laughs> Except that the original Ocean's Eleven isn't a very good film. But <laughs> well, and also <laughs> that's then James, another day. <laughs> then James Horner and James Cameron didn't work together for like a decade. So. <laughs> well, yeah, they had Gailey and her, James Cameron and James Horner did not have a pleasant relationship apparently <laughs> during the shooting of this. Oh they my God. All... I did not realize that Cameron was married to her. Yeah. And like then immediately was married to Bigelow, like the like, yeah. I don't know. I was reading that, then I was like, whoa, there was some hopscotch going on there. Yeah, I'm actually pretty confused about the chronology of his <laughs> relationships. To be honest with you, I don't even look into. I well, never... and then he married um, Linda, Linda, Hamilton, Linda Hamilton like ten years after they had worked together, and I'm like, wait a minute. I don't understand. He really likes people he works with, I and uh, I guess he's, I don't know. <laughs> he, like, he gets bored yeah. after a while. I'm always a little bit like, does he does he like them because he works with him, or, or like because he works with them, or does does he let does he let them work with him because he likes them? You know, like it's that for me. Because obviously, obviously, with with his producers, with with the women who were producers on his films, they didn't get respect on their own. You know, so. Yeah, I don't know. I like I said, I've never dig, dug too deep into James Cameron's personal life because it sounds con- it's a little bit confusing, and I'm not sure. You know, I I for, I for one see James Cameron as probably a tough guy to live with. Yeah, but um, yeah. that's my assumption. He's just so he's extremely obsessive. Um, he's I don't know. I, I can he's overbearing by any every story I've ever heard about him. You know, his his style on the set is extremely totalitarian. So. It's hard for me not to also see that in his life, but I can't say. I don't know the guy, so I don't know. But the assumption, yeah, for me is that that's probably the case. He's just kind of a tough one to live with. All right. Well, that was an interesting way to end that minute, I guess, unless you have something else. Oh, I wanted to say something about Pharaoh here because I feel like the the conversation that we were having earlier about your tools, um, I feel like this whole sequence would have been completely dry and uninteresting had she not been in such command of her tools you know like oh she yeah really she completely sells all of this jargon all of this you know these i think that a lot of times in in like sci-fi movies and aviation movies like you have these like giant set piece flyover moments <laughs> that can be really can feel bloated and uninteresting but everything about this feels seamless and feels like it's like it's necessary you know and i think a lot of that is her yeah I think she's got perfect line delivery throughout yes. every moment that you have her. Like, she's perfectly cast. Completely. I agree. All right. Well, I guess that's going to do it for minute number 32. Um, AJ, you want to remind everyone where they can find you online? Sure. I am at Vox. Uh, it's Asia Romano. And I'm also on Twitter at Asia Romano. And Mariah? And you can find me at Old Films Flickr pretty much anywhere where people talk about films on the internet. You can find us at AlienMinute.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at AlienMinutePod or on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast. We also have a Tee Public page with some fun designs. If you want to come over and get a t-shirt, a sticker, or something like that, uh, that would be cool. All right, that's going to do it for minute number 32. We'll see you tomorrow for minute 33.